microphone. Tifton, <laughs> Tifton, Georgia is known for a couple of different things. It's known, uh, at least as of uh, the writing of the article I'm referring to, as the reading capital uh, of the United States. And they claim the reading capital of the world. And the reason is because they've beat out several other cities in competition over whose residents could read the most books. If you've been to Disney World and you've driven from Atlanta to Disney World, you've driven through Tifton, Georgia. It's basically the halfway point of that 430-mile drive from Atlanta to Orlando. It's a great place to stop, so they end up getting a lot of tourists in Tifton, Georgia. But they, um, again, as of the writing of this article, were known for something else that they probably weren't very proud of. There was an old Victorian house that was abandoned, and it sat empty for a while. And you know if you let a house sit empty without any electricity or any residence, what's going to happen? It's, it's going to deteriorate. Something else may happen. Uh, other animals may decide to make that residence their home if no one's in there. And that's exactly what happened in Tifton, Georgia. This is the house, and it was inhabited by thousands of bats. And so all the residents, you know, they, would, they, they, they realized this. One of the reasons they realized this is because it smelled so bad. If you've, I remember when we were in, in Moss Point, Mississippi, the first school, Mandy's a speech therapist, and the first school she worked at, they had a problem with bats in uh, the ceiling. And they closed that school down for several months, cleaned it, and they never could, as long as she was there, never got the smell out. I mean, it was putrid. It was awful. You can imagine thousands of bats in that house and residents. Of course, teenagers go just to, you know, check it out and probably you know, do things that they shouldn't, but um, they talk about, especially in the summertime, the smell gets so strong that they it just can't stand it. It's just awful. You can imagine, right? A house left empty is going to be inhabited by something, and if you're not careful, it's going to be inhabited by something you don't want in there, like bats. Spiritually speaking, for us as followers of Christ, for a church, if it's not inhabited, if we are not inhabited by the Holy Spirit, if we're not inhabited by the presence of God, then something else is going to fill our lives. And it will not be something pleasant. It will be something unspiritual, maybe even something evil, uh, if we're not careful. And that's why we need to desperately listen. As followers of Christ, when we accept Christ, when he, when he saves us, his Holy Spirit takes up residence, okay? And he's always with us. He'll never leave us. That's not dependent upon you or I and our strength. However, there's something to be said for walking in the presence of God and pursuing the presence of God every day. And what that really means is having right fellowship with God, walking in communion with God. He can be present in my life and I still be disconnected from him, right, as a believer. I can disobey him. I can walk in a way that he doesn't want me to walk. And I can 
not have right fellowship and communion with him, constantly aware of his presence and constantly pursuing his presence. I think, I think a good way to look at it is that we should pursue the presence of God as if we didn't have it, not, not in a defeatist way and not in, in an endless chase with no satisfaction. No, I think what I mean by that is I think we should not take the presence of God for granted in our lives, that we should pursue God every day, that he should be our top priority and fellowship with him should be our constant goal and, and maintaining that fellowship. Because if we're not careful, we will let other things fill our lives and distract us from walking in fellowship with God. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. Now this morning, we're going to start a new series, a three-week series through the book of Haggai. We're going to dig in to this short book, two chapters. But we're going we're gonna to really, over the next three weeks, look at what's happening in this book and what's happening in God's people and hopefully draw some parallels so that we will leave this study with a desire to passionately pursue the presence of God, which is the title of our series over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about the danger today of neglecting God's presence. There is a real danger when we neglect God's presence in our lives. As followers of Christ, we need to understand the importance of having his presence and, and, and walking in communion with him and pursue that. Now, the book of Haggai, if you look, Judah fell to the Babylonians around 586 B.C. Well, in 539, King Cyrus, Cyrus becomes king in Babylon, and he soon orders... Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so a small remnant returns and begins the process of rebuilding God's temple. So they're allowed to go back to their home. And these, the, the, the city, the temple, is completely in ruins. If you'll remember from our study in Nehemiah, the tem- temple gets rebuilt and then the walls are still a rubble pile. Well, everything is a rubble pile right now, including the temple. Everything is just a great mess from when Nebuchadnezzar and his forces ransacked the city and destroyed the city. So they've got their work cut out for them, but they are still called, they are, they are given permission by Cyrus, called by God to rebuild his temple. Gone was the day of glory, though, the former kingdom that was so powerful that no one could stand against, and all of that was gone. Um, gone was that great population that once existed for the nation of Israel. Now it's just a small remnant that's returned to get about the work of rebuilding God's temple. A few, but a faithful few, return. One, on the positive side here, though, these people, these Jews, are returning. Yeah, they're smaller. They're not as powerful as they once were, but they're right the right people in the right place doing the right work at the right time, at least initially, which we'll get to in just a moment. But they're the right people in the right place doing the right work at the right time for the right reasons. And so God is with them. That's the greatest thing they have is the fact that the Lord is with them in their work. The rebuilding of the temple begins around 537 or 536 B.C. They begin laying the foundation 
for this new temple. They also clear the old temple court of all the rubble, so they clear that off, and they set up the altar of burnt offerings so that they can begin to make offerings, which they do still among the rubble. It's cleared off, but it's still there. Right, The foundation's clear. They've got the altar set up. They can begin to once again offer uh, their, their sacrifices to the Lord. So they've gotten off to a, a great start. Right, they're, they're beginning really, really well. But then something happens. Things begin to interfere. Work on the temple eventually stops. And when the work ceased, people begin to move to their private affairs, to attend to their private issues. Gradually, they become used to, be, to worshiping amidst all of the rubble, to where it just becomes commonplace. As a matter of fact, 15 years passes, and they're still worshiping at this altar in the midst of all the rubble while they're tending to personal matters, mostly. They just get used to worshiping in these conditions. Work stops, and they don't really think anything of it, but God notices Desire to build dies out, and God pays attention. And that's where we pick up in Haggai chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 11 together. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to, to, to Zerubbabel and Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild my temple or for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build my house. Build the house. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on the people and animals, and on all that your hands produce. So the people of God had neglected the presence of God. They needed to realize their need, their desperate need for God's presence in their life. They needed to finish the temple. We're in danger as God's people of passively assuming God's presence in our lives and in the life of this church. We need to be where we are desperate for God's presence, not just passively assuming that we can do whatever we want and he'll be okay with that. We need to intentionally practice and pursue God's presence every day of our lives. And in order to do that, we need to make, first make some connections between what's happening here in 536 B.C. and 21st century Christianity because there are some connections. The first is this. God's presence among his people is the ultimate expression of the Old Testament temple. 
Now, in the Old Testament, God's presence, he dwelt in his temple. He dwelt in Jerusalem. Again, these were the right people in the right place. They were God's chosen people in Jerusalem, which is where God dwelt. His presence was there. They had to be in Jerusalem to be in the presence of God. But now, as believers, we are his temple. Individually, we are his temple. Corporately, we are his temple. The Bible teaches both. So the Holy Spirit dwells within God's people. So the connection is, is that we are his people just like they are his people. And just by being a follower of Christ, you are in the right place because God dwells within you. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul asks, do you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? We are the right people in the right place. We are God's people, Christians, followers of Christ, And God is with us, living in us. And so we need to be busy doing his work because the second connection, Christ, even though Christ builds his church, which he does, we, you and I, are the crew that he uses. He is the one who does the heavy lifting, but just like God was using the Jews to rebuild his temple, he uses us as his followers to build his church. We are the right people in the right place, so we must be about doing the right work. He's chosen to use us to build his church, to reach the lost. There are two implications here, two questions we need to ask before we really dig in here. Number one, are we building God's church, first of all? And that's the question we need to continually ask as we pursue him. And number two, are we doing it the way that he wants? Are we building God's church and are we doing it the way that he wants. It's not about my agenda or your agenda or somebody else's agenda. It is about God's agenda. And my deep desire as your pastor, my deep desire is to follow God's will for the life of this church, the future of this church, and personally for me and my family to see God's will accomplished, his purposes accomplished, not mine. And listen, it's a struggle, right? Because there are many times in life where I think, God, I could do that a little better or a little quicker or a little different, but I am not God. You and I, none of us are. And so we have to agree At at the beginning, that we are going to pursue God, his presence, which means that we fully submit to him and his plan for our lives. His plan, building his church, his way. Now, the Jews were doing the right work for the right reasons, at least to begin with. So the question is, are we? And if we are building his church, his way, then we are doing the right thing for the right reasons and the right way. They started well, but they fizzled. One of the reasons is that they, they faced opposition from Cyrus' successor, uh, who wasn't as friendly. Uh, they, they faced opposition from neighboring tribes, namely the Samaritans, whose offer to help rebuild the temple they had previously turned down. And they also had to rebuild their lives. Remember, that not only was the temple in ruins, the city was in ruins, so were their homes. I mean, they had to build homes for themselves. Uh, They had to build schools. They had to do all of the things, build all of the things necessary to survive 
a life in the city outside of the city. So they had things that they needed to tend to. So what happened over time is they got distracted by their own personal matters, things that were important, things that they needed to pay attention to, but they, they allowed those things to distract them from the work of God. They allowed those things to distract them from building God's temple. And they got too busy. They got too distracted. So, I mean, that's a question we, we could ask, right? Are we too distracted? Are we too busy? doing other things instead of doing God's work. Many Christians today are like that. I mean, we live in a fast-paced world, a busy society. Uh, a lot of Christians were once passionate about serving God. You know, that, that mountaintop experience of salvation, and you meet that new believer who's excited and on fire for the Lord. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that fire uh, grows dim as time goes on, right? The, the, the further you go... Away from that experience of accepting Christ and having your life changed, the, the, the smaller that flame can get. It doesn't always happen, but it certainly does. Or you have some sort of mountaintop experience as a believer at a camp or, or maybe just a revival or a conference or, or, or something happens in your life. It's a major, what I call a spiritual marker where God moves in your life in an incredible way. But then, over time, that wanes as well. Life interrupts. Family. You know, you have, you have a wife. You have four kids that need to be taken to a lot of different activities. And, and, and the schedule fills up. And you've got a job. And you've got a house. Bills that you have to pay. All of these things that, that occupy your mind, occupy your time. All of them good things. All of them, all of them things that need our attention. But over time... We get so distracted and so caught up in those things that we forget about the main thing. And we lose sight of what God is calling us to do first and foremost. And that is to pursue him with everything that we are and everything that we have. And to make sure his will is being done in our lives personally as a family and as a church family. We get busy and somehow we get distracted. Meanwhile, God says... Hey, what's the condition of my house? What's the condition of my temple is what he's asking these, his people, the Jews. What's the condition of my work in your home? What's the condition of my work in your work, in your personal life, in your social life? He says, what are you doing to fulfill the purpose for which you have been set apart for by Jesus Christ? For the Jews, the years had gone by, they had pursued their own interests, yet they had not finished the temple of God. And that's where we come in, in this book of Haggai. They had some specific problems, and these problems relate to us as 21st century Christians. So we made the connection. Now let's look at the dangers. These problems that they are facing represent dangers for us if we neglect the presence of God. Dangers of neglecting the presence of God. First, the Jews were living in excess while neglecting God's presence. Look at verse 4. Remember, 15 years have passed. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? That's what God's asking them. God was accusing the people of having plenty for themselves. Evidently, they had rebuilt their homes. They had plenty for themselves. Paneled houses were nice houses in this time. And so they, they had plenty, and so he's accusing them of having plenty of time for themselves while pleading a lack of time for God, or plenty for themselves, period, 
and, and a lack of resources to build God's temple. Plenty of money, plenty of pleasures, while claiming not to have enough to do what God had called them to do for his service. And I think of the evangel- evangelical church in America overall. I mean, think about where we are in America and the church as a whole compared to how the church is in some other countries where they're persecuted. Um, we, we are the right people, certainly. I mean, we're God's people. We're, if those of us who are followers of Christ, that makes you the right person, whether you know it or not. We're in the right place. We attend good Bible-believing fellowships, which this church is, so we're in the right place. The church is evangelical church. Not every church, but overall, evangelical, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-following churches are in the right place in those churches. We're trying to do the right things. We really want to share the gospel. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to do works that honor God. And we're even trying to do those things for the right reasons. In other words, we really want to please God. I don't believe you would be here today if you didn't want to please God. We all want to please God. The evangelical church in America wants to please God. We want to see Christ honored in our world. But something's wrong in the church in America overall. We've got the right motivation. We want to do it. We want to see God's will done but, but somehow, in our day and time, that never really comes to fruition. Not universally true, but overall in the church in America. And the reason is, is our, I believe, our failure to put God and his will first. And, 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 and we, we many times in the church in America, listen, we, we pursue affluence and comfort over God's will. And maybe some discomfort. And the, the reason that churches in other countries don't have this problem because they're living in persecution, many places, like Asia, and, and in many Muslim countries now where the church is growing like wildfire because they're used to being uncomfortable. And so they're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But we've grown comfortable, and so we put affluence first. Harry Ironside wrote, once wrote in his study of Haggai this, He said, alas, how much is sacrificed for money? Christian fellowship, the joys of gathering at the table of the Lord, gospel work, and the privileges of mutual edification and instruction in divine things. All are parted with often simply because the opportunity arises of adding a few paltry dollars to the monthly income and savings. Brethren with families even will leave a town or a city where the spiritual support and fellowship of their brethren is found, and where their children have the privilege of the gospel meeting in the Sunday school, simply because they see or fancy they see an opportunity to better their earthly circumstances. Alas, unfortunately, he says, in many instances they miss all that they had hoped for and lose spiritually what was never regained. That was written in 1909, and so not a whole lot's changed, right? Uh, we pursue material comfort as opposed to pursuing God and his purpose, even if it contradicts human reason, even if it contradicts what we think is the best option, God has a better option. And at this point, we're beginning to see why the failure of the people, of God's people to build the Lord's house was so very tragic. And why similar failures can be very so tragic for us, can be just as tragic for us. 
It's not that any particular building or temple or whatever is that important. I love our new renovated facility, and we're going to use it to glorify God. And I, I'm so excited about the fact that we, that's all complete just, you know, because I don't have to go to those meetings every other week and all of that and just all the stress and all that and how you've been faithful to, to give and, 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 and pay off so much of that so far. I'm so, but it's not about the building. It's not so much uh, of, of importance of where it's at even. It's not even that affluence is bad, okay? It's not a bad thing that we are able to be comfortable in our world. The, the issue here and the danger for all of us, the Jews, the problem that they had was inverted priorities. I mean, their priorities were just out of whack. They were putting other things before God, and the reality is inverted priorities, whatever, however good those things are that you're focusing on, if they're inverted, that's just another form of idolatry. When you put anything ahead of God, good or bad, it can be a form of idolatry. They put the creation above their creator, their comfort, their possessions, their, their houses, even their families above their creator. And God says this in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He also says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with everything that you are and everything that you have, is another way to say that. And that should have been the Jews' top priority. Instead, they were living in excess while neglecting the presence of God. And God says, what's the condition of my house? What's the condition of your homes? What's the condition of your lives? And that was the first problem. The second problem is that they were interpreting economic stress and vain effort incorrectly. They were interpreting economic stress and vain effort incorrectly. Let's look at verse 5 and then we'll jump to verse 9. Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. In other words, take a good hard look at your life and what you're doing, how you're living. Verse 9, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? There's a lot of things in life we blame on God. When things don't go our way, well, this is one of those times where he's saying, all that stuff that's messed up in your life, yeah, I'm causing that because I'm trying to get your attention. He says, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals and all that your hands produce. The Jews should have been asking this question, is our economic stress, is this drought, all of these things, and all of our vain effort, was that a result, is this a result of us not seeking God's presence? That's what God's telling them here. The reason all this stuff is happening is because you're not pursuing my presence. The people of God had put other things before God, and God, who will have no other gods before him, sent leanness. Look at verses 5 and 6. Go back to verse 5 again. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. In other words, it's all, there's never enough. Never enough, never satisfied, never content. 
And I don't know of a passage that better describes the feverish yet ineffective activity of most people in our world today. We run, we run, we run in a hurry. These, these Jews were in a hurry, but they weren't accomplishing very much. It reminds me of a Pennsylvania Dutch expression. The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. You ever feel that way? You run, you run, you run. It's like you're going up an escalator, taking two steps at a time, but the escalator's coming down faster than you can go up. You know, we're, we're constantly moving, constantly going. We work every possible moment. These Jews, they were working every possible moment. They didn't want to miss one turn of a revolving door, but they were all working and their efforts were bringing them nothing, nothing but discontentedness, discontentment. That's all they had. They were left empty because they had returned to the land, God's land, in obedience to the land of Israel, Jerusalem. They thought, simply, listen, that was a big deal, okay? This was just a few, a small remnant. They had, they had, had, had gone back, taken a chance, and going back. But because they had done that, they thought just going back was enough. Hey, we're, we're one of the faithful few. We've, we came back because not everybody did. We came back, and they thought just by that one act of obedience that God would bless them if they didn't continue in obedience. They thought, hey, we've done enough. We can go pay attention to our own stuff, and God will be fine with us worshiping on this altar in the midst of all of this rubble while we build our own houses and our own lives. They were still, and that's something that we can't forget here, all right? They've built their houses. They've built their homes. It's been 15 years. They're doing pretty well, okay? They've got everything they they should need, and yet they are still worshiping on an altar, on a foundation in the midst of a bunch of mess, a rubble pile, and thinking God's going to be okay with that. And then think about the Old Testament. God's presence dwelt in his temple. So the presence of God was a rubble pile, and they thought God would be good with that. But God called for a drought instead. He withheld both the dew and the rain, the scripture says. He took his blessing away from the men who labored in the fields and the vineyards and the orchards. They were falling behind and they were dissatisfied. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages earns wages to put in a purse with holes in it, a bag with holes in it. I'm sure they were reminded of God's covenant in Leviticus 26. Verses 18 through 20, but after these things you will not obey me. I will proceed to discipline you, the Lord says, seven times for your sins. I will break down your strong pride. I will make your sky like iron and your land like bronze. And your strength will be used up for nothing. Your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not bear their fruit. You know, the same could be said of, of, of most people in America today. Many people at least. More cars, more houses, more stuff. We got more. St- I got more stuff than I know what to do with. I was talking to Donald the other day. We got some stuff we've stored up in the, the garage up here that was in boxes in, pa- in, uh, in Scottsboro that we moved from our garage there to here, and it's still in boxes here. I don't even know what all's out there. We need to throw it away, but for some reason we haven't taken time to do it. We got more stuff than we can fit in our house. That's why it's here. We all got stuff, right? More cars overall. More cars, more houses, more stuff. Yet many people with those things are still miserable. Their lives are empty. 
And listen, I know we're in, in, in tough economic times right now. Inflation's going crazy, and, and I'm just as concerned about that as you guys are. But uh, measure ourselves by third world standards, and we're all doing pretty well. We're living in luxury compared to many people across the world. Christians in the United States as a whole is, are, are doing well compared to believers are just citizens in third world countries. You know, if you look at the statistics, debt is up here. Church giving is somewhere down here. Now listen, I, I want to be clear here. You are a giving, a faithful church, and I praise God for that. You are, you are a very generous church, all right? But we can't become complacent. Remember, these, these Jews, they started well. They went back when others didn't. They began the work. When the tasks seemed insurmountable. But somewhere along the line, they got distracted. Somewhere along the line, they let other things pull them away from God's work. We cannot get complacent. Passively assuming God's presence while we focus on things that he, he doesn't want to be first in our lives. And assume that he'll be okay with that. We can't get distracted. God deserves our best. We should pursue him with everything that we are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We should pursue him with everything that we are and everything that we have. God deserves our best, not the leftovers. The Jews were giving God the leftovers and and assuming he would be okay with that. And he says, guess what, guys? I'm not. I'm not okay with that. I'm the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. God deserves our best. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then, then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Seems to be an opposite of what we just read in Haggai, right? They've got stuff, but they're never satisfied. They never have enough. And God says, if you put me first, if you give me your best, and yeah, that's tithes, that's offerings, but that's everything. That my, my whole life, he gets the best. He gets the first fruits, not the leftovers. And if I will do that, then my life will overflow with his blessing. That's not name it, claim it. You may not be rich. You may not get a bunch of money, but you will be satisfied. You will be content. You will have your needs met. What God was, willing, was telling them was that they had neglected his presence. Their priorities were out of whack. And they were also seeking personal comfort over God's pleasure and glory, which is the third danger. They were seeking personal comfort over God's pleasure and glory. Look at verse 7. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Build my house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. But the Jews, if you go back to verse 2, they were already making excuses as to why they weren't doing God's house or building God's house. Verse 2, the Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Have we ever heard excuses in the church that are similar to that? Missions, now is not the right time. We, We can't take on something like that. I know I should witness, but not this person, not right now. It just, it's, not, it's not the right time. Too uncomfortable, right? You know, whatever it is, God calling you to step out in faith to serve him in some area, whether it's ministry or, or, or a specific ministry within the church, I just don't have time for that right now. Right now is not the right time for that. 
Billy Sunday called an excuse, the skin of a reason, stuffed with a lie. Benjamin Franklin wrote this, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was good at anything else. Now, I found this. This is, this is amusing to me. Maybe you'll find it amusing. Maybe some of you have lived this. I don't know. These are actual, the following are actual quotes and excuses from accident reports submitted to different insurance companies following car accidents by the policyholders who were at fault. All right. Excuse number one, coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree that I don't have. It's a little passive. Hey, this is a good one. The, car, the other car collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. I, this will be funny, I, but I could see myself doing this. I thought my window was down, but found it was up when I put my hand through it. <laughs> this, is, this is priceless right here. I collided with a stationary truck, which was coming the other way. <laughs> stationary. Some of you will get that in a minute. Stationary, but it was coming the other Which is it? The other guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. These are real. I'm not making these up, y'all. And last but not least, my mother-in-law may be listening today. I love you, Vicky. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over an embankment. I would say something smart-alecky like, well, of course, you understand that, right? But no, I have a great mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. I couldn't have picked better in-laws. And I'm not just saying that because I think they're watching, which I think they are. But I do. I love them. (laughs) Excuses, right? We can take anything and wrap it in something and make it sound good in our minds. Now, those don't even sound that good on paper, right? How about excuses for church absences? This one may not be as humorous. I work so hard all week that when Sunday comes, fill in the blank. When I was a kid, I was made to go to church three times a week, and so now company came to our house just as we were getting ready, so we couldn't make it. I came to that church twice, and not a soul spoke to me. I don't have anything suitable to wear. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. There's still excuses, and the truth is we can always come up with excuses But excuses never solve whatever problem you're dealing with in your life. And certainly serving the Lord, we can come up with excuses not to do it. Not the right time, too many other things going on, too many distractions. But excuses aren't going to solve the problem. They didn't for the Jews, and they won't for us in our lives. The Jews, the only solution to the Jews' problems was to reprioritize their lives and begin again doing the work God had called them there to do. To build his house, to build his temple, to rebuild it, to pursue his presence. Because don't forget, the biggest issue here is not that that there was an empty foundation here. The biggest issue was their pursuing of their own interests and leaving God's temple in the shape that it was was a reflection of the fact that they just weren't that concerned about God's presence in their life. Because if they were, the place where he dwelt would have been in tip-top shape. They would have finished that first and then pursued other things, but they just weren't. And the reality is they had neglected God's presence and and there was no excuse good enough. God was, was not going to accept any excuse that they offered. So here's a question for all of us. 
And I know the book of Haggai can be kind of tough to swallow. All right? I've been wrestling with this message. I've been wrestling with this passage. It's hard to swallow, but the question we all need to ask is, am I passionately pursuing God's presence in my life? Are we passionately pursuing God's presence? Are we giving him our best, really, in every area of my life? Am I giving God my best? Because here's what God wants, okay? You want to know what God wants? Here it is. He wants you. And, And I mean all of you, all of me. He wants everything that you are, everything that you have. Give it to him. I mean, he owns me because he bought me with his son's life. So the reality is I I don't have a right to take it back, to take control. He wants you, and here's, here's, here's the payoff, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. If I'll give him all of me, if we will give him all of ourselves, this church completely, what he does is he blesses us with his presence. He blesses us with a life that we could never imagine. Again, not name it, claim it, but a life of purpose, a life pursuing his kingdom and seeing his kingdom come to earth, to come about in our lives, to see his kingdom purposes fulfilled, to see people's lives changed in ways that can only be explained by the supernatural power and presence of God. He is going to fulfill his purpose in this world. No question about that. Skip ahead to the end. Revelation makes it very clear. One day he will return All wrongs will be made right, and he will reign for all of eternity. There will be no sin. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, no sin, no injustice, no evil. All of that will be done away with, cast in the lake of fire. It will all be done away with. He will fulfill his purpose. The question is, will we be a part of that? Will I be a part of that in my life? Am I going to passionately pursue that every day of my life? Am I going to pursue his presence or am I going to live in neglect and get distracted and assume that he'll be okay with that? Am I going to live on past glories or am I going to pursue God every day and every day in the future, today and every day in the future? God delights. Here's here's one of the things that, that is a mystery to me that I'll never understand as long as I'm on this earth. God chooses to use Imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes, his plan. And he delights, not only does he allow us to be a part of it, he takes joy in the obedience of his children. He takes joy in us fulfilling his purposes. He takes joy when we sacrifice as if our sacrifice was anything compared to his sacrifice of his son. And because of that, he deserves our very best. I believe with all of my heart, I want you to hear me, okay? I know a lot of this is, is, is hard to, you know, we, whenever Scripture forces us to kind of do an internal evaluation, it's tough. But I believe with all of my heart that the best, God's best is still ahead of this church. That he's got a plan for us, and it is great, and it is better than anything that we could ever imagine But we cannot get complacent, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. We cannot get complacent and stop the work of building his church. He does the building. We are the crew that he uses. And we cannot stop the work. Because before we know it, 15 years will have passed. And God will be saying, what's the condition of my house? 
What's the condition of your lives? Now, being a child of mine has its joys and privileges, right, Gracie? She's going to help me. I brought a folding chair. Gracie doesn't know what I'm going to do with this folding chair. She's about to find out. You make those sounds when you get older. That was involuntary, by the way. All right, Gracie. It's very simple, okay? I told you I wasn't going to embarrass you too much other than having to get up on stage, all right? What I want you to do is put your hand on the chair. I want you to just sit in that chair. It's a folding chair, sit in the chair. Wait a minute. Stop. Okay, listen very carefully, all right? She, she, she usually listens to her dad pretty well. Sit in the chair. Go ahead. Stop. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're doing what? You're trying to unfold the chair. I didn't say unfold the chair. I said sit in the chair. Can you do that right now? Why can't you do that right now? Because it's not open. What must you do to sit in a folded chair? You, you can answer. It's okay. It's easy. What, what must you do to sit in a folded chair? Unfold the chair. Okay, go ahead, Gracie. There you go. It's, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Have a seat. All right. Go ahead. Give her a hand. Very silly, but very important, right? What happens if you try to sit in that chair before you unfold it? I don't know what, but something bad's going to happen, right? Okay, very important step, right? If you're going to have a folded chair, if you want to sit in it, you cannot skip that step of unfolding that chair. If we as God's people are going to fulfill his purposes for our lives, for this church, we cannot skip one very important step, and that step is we must seek his will. Seek him and seek his will. If we will do that, then he will show us his plan and his purpose. But if we skip that step of seeking God's will, then something disastrous is going to happen, right? We must pursue God. But I want to ask this question. What would happen? Just just use your spiritual imagination for just a moment. What would happen in your life and in the life of this church if we passionately pursued God's presence with everything that we are and everything that we have? What do you think would happen? And all that that entails, seeking him and obeying him regardless of what he asks us to do and regardless of how crazy it seems in our finite brains. If we pursued him with everything that we are and everything that we have, and I mean really, I'm not just talking halfway, I'm talking passionately, every day, every minute of every day, walking in communion, if that was the only thing that we really cared about, was pursuing God and making Him known and, and, and fulfilling His purposes in our lives. What, what could God do with a group of people, even a small remnant? What could God do through that people, those people who were passionately pursuing Him and everything? I don't know about you, but I'd kind of like to find out. I really, really would. But we have to commit to that. If we pursue God, then we can go, get out of bed every morning and we can run down the road of following his plan and fulfilling his purpose. And that's a road that leads to satisfaction and contentment and blessing. So I want to leave you with this final question. Are you passionately pursuing and practicing walking in communion? Are you passionately pursuing and practicing 
God's presence in your life. Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you've given us a plan. You've given us purpose. You saved us and you've set us apart for your purposes. You didn't set us apart just to preserve us in one position until you return. You've set us apart to fulfill your kingdom purposes. And that's what we need to be about as your people. And I pray that we would, would, would continue to pursue you with everything that we are. Everything that we have as individuals, as a church, that, that your will would be our top priority, that you would be first and in the center of our lives, and that we wouldn't let anything stand in the way of fulfilling your plan and purpose, seeking you with everything that we are, everything that we have, seeking you above all else, living in obedience, living righteously by your power and your strength, knowing that if we do that, you will give us everything we need to live and to accomplish your purpose. Lord, that begins, of course, with responding to you when you seek us out. And there may be somebody here today or watching at home who doesn't know you personally. And you are speaking to them right now. Right now, during this time of prayer, you're drawing them to yourself. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you, recognizing that like all of us, they have sinned and fallen short of your glory, but there's forgiveness available through you, Jesus Christ, your death, your resurrection, your payment for my sin, for our sin, the sin of the world. And Lord, if you are bringing someone under conviction during this time, I pray that they would just turn to you and ask for you to enter their lives and to forgive them of their sin and then come forward. Or reach out to us and, and find out what, what to do next after making that most important decision. But for those of us who are your followers, Lord, I pray that we would just take away from today that question. Am I passionately pursuing and practicing your presence in my life every day? And if not, what needs to change? What needs to be reprioritized? What's taking your place that shouldn't? Good, bad, or in between? Am I pursuing you with everything that I am and everything that I have for my personal life, for my family, for my work, and for your church? Lord, just speak to us now. Show us how to respond to your word, and may we do it in obedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?